Good morning. We are glad you're here. It's a beautiful day. Very thankful for the opportunity to be together. It's good to see Paul and Patty have somebody that they would like to talk to you about. I promise you they have lots to say. But we are glad you're here. If you're visiting, as always, we invite you to come back. Thank you for coming our way. We have a number of our own folks gone this weekend. Jared took a group to Sardis, and they are on a retreat. I think they're coming back today sometime. So keep them in your prayers. We're looking today at Colossians chapter 1, the passage read a moment ago. Colossians chapter 1. And the theme of our study today, the majesty and sovereignty of Jesus. One of the books in the New Testament that really highlights Jesus, the Son of God, is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. As a matter of fact, there is an exaltation of Jesus over and over again in this book. I'm reminded of what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, when he wrote, but now we see Jesus. And then you remember over in chapter 12, he talked about Focusing our eyes on Jesus. And so it's all about what the record has to say concerning Jesus, the Son of God. In this text today, there is an amplification of the majesty and sovereignty of the one that we call Jesus. So with that in mind, I want to begin our study today by first of all talking about the revelation of Jesus. You know, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that it affords us insight into the nature of Christ, the Son of God. Paul, in his letter here, says some things that ought to captivate our attention in relationship to Jesus, the Son of God. And there are a couple of thoughts, I think, that are very important. And so with that in mind, let's just think for a moment or two about the revelation about Jesus Christ. And this has to do with His character, His nature. Now there are two things that the Scriptures teach us about the Christ. Number one, we come to understand something about His pre-incarnate state. That has reference to the fact that Jesus existed before taking upon Himself, human flesh. And the idea is that He is the eternal God. Matter of fact, Isaiah in chapter 9, you remember, identified Him as the everlasting Father. So we're talking about Jesus as the divine Son of God. Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1 that He is before all things. And the idea is that He is anterior to creation as we know it. John said in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's who we're talking about. Jesus Christ, that eternal being. But then, not just His pre-incarnate state, but His incarnate state. And the idea here is that Jesus tabernacled in human flesh. That's hard for us to conceive of. That deity would take upon himself human flesh. But you remember Paul in this particular text said, It pleased the Father that in him 
all the fullness should dwell. Over in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said, In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Remember John in John chapter 1 talked about that eternal Word. We mentioned that just a moment ago. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. But look at verse 14. In verse 14, John said, The Word became flesh. Isn't that what Paul taught in Philippians chapter 2? When he stressed the fact that Jesus emptied Himself taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that's what the Bible has to say about the one that we call Jesus. So the revelation about Jesus. But then there's a second thought. It has to do with the revelation by Jesus. Look now at Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul said, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When Paul uses the word firstborn, he's not saying that Jesus was a created being. Far from it. But rather the word firstborn denotes rank, position. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so Paul here is attributing to him the fact that he is preeminent in all things. As a matter of fact, the word firstborn, according to one writer, says that that is a technical Jewish term denoting uncreated. That's what we just said. He's an, he is an eternal being. So what about Jesus Christ? What is it that He reveals to us? Well, look again, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So here's the idea. The visible Son, that being Jesus, is a revelation of the invisible Father to mankind. Do you remember back in John chapter 14? Jesus had been talking about going away, departing from the disciples. His intent was to go to the cross, to suffer, bleed, and die, be raised from the dead on the third day, ascend to heaven where he would take a seat at the Father's right hand. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the perfect representation of the Father. And so in John chapter 14, Jesus would say to Philip in the long ago, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so the idea is that Jesus is the one who reveals to us something about the Father, the first member of the Godhead. And so the revelation of Jesus. But then there's a second thought. Secondly, let's think about the rulership of Jesus. Paul's going to talk about the creative power of God. I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is not, was not a created being. The word firstborn denotes rank, position. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He is sovereign. He's over all things. That's what the psalmist would say in Psalm 99. 
But with regard to the rulership of Jesus, first and foremost, to understand something about his reign or rule over physical creation. Look now at what Paul said beginning in verse 16. He talks about the creative power of Almighty God. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. Paul stressing the creative power of the second member of the Godhead. When God said in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, the Lord Jesus was the agent by which that was accomplished. Do you remember the psalmist quoted by the Hebrew writer in chapter 1? Designates Jesus as the one who brought creation into being. He said, and you, O Lord, have in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. Again, the creative power of Almighty God. Jesus made something from nothing. That's the world. And the world that we live in is evidence of design and a designer. So Jesus is the one that created all things. That power reflected in creation. But then there is the preservation of all things. Look now again at verse 17. He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. The world, the universe that we live in, is held together, bound together by the Lord, isn't it? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. We don't live in a world of chaos, but rather the universe that we live in is a demonstration of the power of Almighty God. The universe that we belong to is evidence for a divine creator and a divine sustainer, one who is keeping everything in balance. We could talk about gravity and centricity centrifugal force. Think about oxygen and all these great blessings that we enjoy as members of the human family. Who created all that? Who sustains all of that? The Lord does, doesn't he? So to understand something about his creative power in the physical realm, but not just the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. Look again at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul has just said that Jesus is the one that created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And that would include those angelic beings as spoken of by Paul in Colossians chapter 1. But then he said he is the head of the body, the church. This now brings to mind his power in the spiritual realm. Note if you would what Paul says in verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church, the beginning. The word beginning means active cause. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was the originator 
of the church. In other words, he's the one that brought it into being. Isn't that what he said in Matthew chapter 16? In Caesarea Philippi, when he said to the disciples, I will build my church. The church prophesied of, planned by Almighty God. It is a part of God. It is God's eternal plan, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. Those Old Testament prophets foretold of the coming of this institution into which all nations would flow. And so what Paul is trying to stress here is that Jesus is the one responsible for the church. He is the one who built it. And not just built it, but he bought it with his blood, didn't he? Acts 20, verse 28. So he is not only the originator of the church, but Paul said he is over the church. Look again at what Paul writes. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The head is a designation of authority. Our body takes direction from our head, from our mind. And so what we're saying here is that the church that was built by Jesus, bought by Jesus, takes her direction from the head, who is Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ is the one who directs the affairs of the church. For example, you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, when Paul said, but if I'm delayed, if I tarry, I'm writing these things. Why, Paul? So that you might know how to behave yourself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who has all authority, Matthew 28 at verse 18. And God the Father said, we are to hear him, Matthew 17 at verse 5. In this same book that we're looking at, Colossians. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. What he's saying is everything that we do in matters of religion, faith, and practice, it all goes back to the authority of Jesus. To do something in His name means to do it by His authority. So Jesus is the head of the church. The authority rests where? In the Bible. The authority is not in the church. The authority is not in the papacy. The authority is not in mankind. It's not in the creeds and doctrines of men. But rather the authority rests in Jesus as the divine head. Paul here is saying there's one head and there is one body. And that head and body are to work in harmony with one another. So everything that we do, we want to put a thus saith the Lord on it. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11? If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. The world today needs Christ. Who then is the voice for Christ in a lost and dying world? We are, aren't we? Was it not Paul who said the church is the pillar and ground of the truth? 
If the world's going to hear the truth of God, we have to be that voice. We have to be the spokesman for the Lord. Now, there's a third thing I want to share with you. First, the revelation of Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father. He is, as the Hebrew writer would say, the express image of His person. But then the rulership of Jesus. His rule, His reign reflected in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. But then thirdly, the redeeming Jesus. So with that in mind, let's look now at what the Apostle Paul has to say. The first thing that I would call your attention to is the plight of living in sin. Now look at what Paul said, beginning in verse 19. It pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross, and you who once were alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has He reconciled. So first, Paul talks about the conduct of those who are living in sin. Look again at what he says beginning in verse 21. Those who are living in sin, they are alienated from God. In other words, they're estranged from God. When did that happen? In the garden? When man sinned in the garden, a separation took place. And Paul is saying that those who are outside of Christ are alienated. They are estranged from Jesus, the Son of God. But note why they're estranged. It wasn't because they were born that way. It wasn't because people are born in sin. But rather, Paul said, you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, listen to him, by wicked works. Isn't that what John said in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4? That those who commit sin transgress the law of God? Sin, in all of its ugliness, is a result of transgressing, transcrossing the law of Almighty God. Now Paul said in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Sin's the problem, isn't it? And so we're talking about the conduct of those who are living in sin. How then does the devil exploit us? He attacks the mind, doesn't he? Paul said, you were enemies in your mind. He uses the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he is constantly attacking, trying to chip away, to destroy our faith. So that we might lose our faith and faithfulness to the Lord. But what about the consequences? What if we just choose to live a life of sin and say, you know what, I'm not interested in Christ. I'm not interested in the Son of God. I don't care anything about His majesty and sovereignty. Well, you need to understand, we all need to understand that there's coming a day when we will all stand before the, the majesty and sovereign Jesus. You ever thought about standing face to face with the Lord? Paul talks about the consequences of sin. 
Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin, Paul said, is death. When we stand before Almighty God, we want the Lord to present us holy, blameless. We want to be irreproachable in His sight, don't we? I don't want the Lord to hold to my account a life of sin and unrighteousness. But based upon the precious blood of Jesus, I can enjoy cleansing, can I? So we talk about the plight of those who are living in sin, but there was a plan enacted by Almighty God to liberate us from sin. So with that in mind, let's look again at what Paul said. Let's read again verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. Things on earth and things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. God is the one that designed the plan to redeem us. Jesus was the agent by which that plan was accomplished. And so the idea is mankind was separated from God. We're on one side, God's on another. And Jesus stands between both of us and functions as our mediator. He's the one that brought the two parties together. Jesus brought heaven and earth together. Well, how did he do that? By the blood of his cross. We can't emphasize enough the blood of Jesus, the Son of God. The passage read a moment ago, before we partook of the Lord's Supper, Hebrews chapter 9, reminds us of how important and special the blood is. The writer said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. I mean, go back to Jesus instituting his memorial feast on the night of the Passover. Listen to Jesus saying, this is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And think about Paul when he wrote in Ephesians saying, it's in him that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Or John in the Revelation saying unto him who loved us and washed us in our sins by his own blood. Zechariah, the prophet of God in the long ago saw a day in which God would open a fountain for cleansing. The cleansing power, the blood of Jesus. So salvation afforded us by whom? By Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus was the one acting on behalf of the Father, mediating between the Father and mankind. And it's Jesus Jesus is the one who has reconciled the two parties together. Where did he do that? In the church, didn't he? Remember what Paul said, Ephesians 2.16? Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God. By what means? The cross. Go back and look at verse 12, Ephesians 2. Paul describes those who are outside a covenant relationship with God. He said, in effect, they're without hope and without God in this world. In verse 13, though, he said, but now in Christ Jesus, look at the change. In Christ Jesus, you that once were far off are brought near by what means? By the blood of Christ. 
So Paul would say in Ephesians 2.14, For He is our peace who has made both one, broken down the middle wall of partition. Jesus joined both Jew and Gentile together in that one body. It's in that one body that we enjoy reconciliation, redemption, salvation. But then there's not just emphasis on our salvation in Christ, but our steadfastness in Christ. Look again at what Paul said beginning in verse 23. He said, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, you were saved in Christ through His blood. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled. And because of that salvation, you want to cling to the Son of God. You want to be grounded and steadfast. You don't want anything to come between you and the Lord. You don't want to be moved away from your hope. What hope? Christ. You know what Paul said, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that we live in hope of life eternal? You see, God wants us to live a faithful, steadfast life. How do we do that? Staying close to Him through His Word. Staying close to Him through His work. Staying close to Him through worship. Whether it be public worship, private worship, private devotion, public devotion. The goal is to draw close to God. Why? So that our soul might be strong, steadfast. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So I want to ask you a question. When you read about Jesus in the New Testament, when you begin sifting through His life, is it something that means the world to you? From the vantage point that you understand, He is my only hope. I need Him in my life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John provide us with various glimpses into the life of Jesus. It's not about reading the life of Jesus from an academic standpoint. Granted, we can look at things academically. But rather, it's about looking at Christ and the cross and what He's done. Not just academically, but from a personal standpoint. Like this. What can the Lord do for me? What has the Lord done for me? Number one, God wants you to be saved. That is an irrefutable statement. The Bible says God would have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. If you're here today and you are not a Christian, to understand God wants you to be saved. The Lord Jesus wants you to believe that He is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. Faith is an imperative in life, Hebrews chapter 11. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. 
and then to turn from a life of sin through repentance. When we're baptized into Christ, here's what Paul said, Colossians chapter 1. He has qualified us to be partakers of the divine inheritance. When we obey the gospel, he delivers us out of the domain of the devil or Satan. We are delivered out of the world and translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And Paul said it's in that sphere that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So my question to you this hour, are you a Christian? When we talk about Jesus Christ being the Lord of life, do you know what that means? It means He controls everything. He is the pilot of my life. He's leading, guiding, directing my life. Why? Because I'm taking directions from the head. And I want to live in such a way so that one day He's going to say to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. If you're here today and you're not, your life